Today, I want to look at, with you at something from the, from the parasha, from the Torah portion. Uh, the whole theme of Passover. In Hebrew, Passover is Pesach. Everybody say Pesach. And um, Passover is, in Hebrew, it's called like the, the festival of our freedom. So it's, um, it's like the festival that symbolizes freedom. And I want to look at that theme of freedom with you also. Um, Passover is kind of like, it's something that's part of a broader fabric. Uh, Passover happens on a specific day of a specific month on a certain timetable or calendar. Passover is one of a whole series of festivals. So as we talk about Passover, we'll also be talking about, you know, the, the calendar that it's on in general, and we'll be talking about the whole concept of God's appointed times or festivals in general also. Um, we can begin by looking at Exodus chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to look at a lot of Bible today. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Um, the Holy One says to Moses and Aaron, while they're still in Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It's to be the first month of the year for you. So Israel's calendrical year didn't start in January, in the middle of winter. It started in the springtime, um, in the month that's called Aviv in Hebrew. Everybody say Aviv. That's like the, the, the fresh barley when it's springing up. So it's, um, Jewish commentators pointed out thousands of years ago that when God came to set his people free, there's that theme of freedom there. The first thing he said is, okay guys, you are on my timetable now. <laughs> You're not marching to the drum of Pharaoh anymore. I have a calendar for you. This is the month when we're going to start the year. So uh, isn't that neat? When we, start, when we start to enter into redemption, when we begin to experience Yeshua's freedom in our lives, we are going to be marching to the beat of a different drummer. It's going to be like we're in two worlds. Yes, you're still in this world system. You are still in the matrix at times. But it's like you're also part of another world. It's like you're, you're marching to the beat of another drummer also. And uh, that's, that's very much our case as believers, and that was very much the case of the people of Israel also. Um, it's kind of interesting, too, that like the first, some of the first words off of Yahweh's lips when he's speaking to Moses and Aaron for Israel is like the first commandment he gives is something about time. Isn't it interesting that for some reason he thought time was important? I mean, that's one of the themes of the whole Passover thing is timing, right? It couldn't just be any old day that you get the lamb and you splash the blood on the doorpost. It couldn't just be any old day that you have to stay in the house all day, all night long. He said, there's a specific day and I need all of you to track with me on this one really carefully. So he says, my t so we see here that timing can be very important to the creator. Something else that, that's something that jumps out at us here. Um, let's just look for a second at the whole concept of the calendar that he was giving Israel, uh, the timetable of the creator of the universe. In Genesis chapter 1, like, like reversing all the way to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1 verse 14 gives us four reasons that the sun and the moon and the stars were created. And this is kind of cool because the sun, the moon, and the stars are still around. So this verse in Genesis is probably still relevant. It says in Genesis 1.14 that the sun, the moon, and the stars were created for days and for years. That's where you get the whole concept of, you know, a day, obviously. 24-hour day is, has to do with the solar cycle. The year, too, we live in a world where we are on a solar calendar. So every year is determined by the, the revolutions of the earth uh, around the sun. 
That makes sense. He also said that they are for two other things. For signs, everybody say signs. There's something about the motions of the heavenly bodies that God uses as signs to humanity on planet Earth. And for seasons, everybody say seasons. The Hebrew word there for season, it isn't like the four seasons of the year. The, the Hebrew word there for seasons is mo'adim. Everybody say mo'adim. That's the plural. The singular is mo'ed. Everybody say mo'ed. A mo'ed in Hebrew is like a, an appointment in time or an appointment in space. It's the word that you would have for a date. If you were to set a date with someone, okay, I'll meet you at such and such a coffee house at such and such a time, or a, or a rendezvous, a rendezvous point. That's the idea there. So all the way back at the beginning of creation, the creator of the universe is making the sun and these stars and this moon for signs and for appointed times. And here, we see him talking this language to Moses and Aaron and saying, okay, so we are on this revolution of the moon. This is a month. I made it like this in the beginning, and you are going to see an appointed time on the basis of this revelation, revolution of the moon. And that appointed time was Passover. So here's an example of it. Sometimes, I think we usually look at the appointed times, let's say God's appointed times, more in past terms. You know, we look at it way back in the days of Passover, or we look at Leviticus 23, where God gives Israel the, the, the series of feasts that he gave them, or we read about it in the Gospels, where Yeshua died right on Passover, or when he poured out the Holy Spirit right on Pentecost. Sometimes I don't think we look at the, these appointed times so much in futuristic terms. But I actually think there's a good, solid biblical basis for not only looking at the appointed times in, as something in our past, as the people of God, but also something in our future. I'll, uh, I'll share with you a couple of passages along those lines. In Revelation chapter 20, it says that Yeshua is going to come back. He's going to be the ultimate king. He's going to have a name like written on his leg. I don't know if that's a tattoo or what. He's riding a war horse. He deals with his enemies. And he raises his people from the dead. And then it says that they reign with him for a solid thousand years, a millennium. And it really doesn't describe that thousand year period of time. It just says that they reign with him. And then at the end of it, it says Satan is released and he stirs up the nations and they come up on the broad plane of the earth against the I think it says against God's beloved people. Something to that effect. Uh, frankly, I, I find that shocking. I mean, this is a solid thousand years of human history. And if you, uh, if you read the early church fathers, let's say from the 100s, from the second century, uh, the majority of them believed that this would be a literal thousand year span of time. Uh, that idea is called chiliasm, like eschatologically, you know, in terms of like how things are going to play out in the end and whatever. That's called chiliasm. If you're a chiliast, then you believe in a thousand year uh, reign of Christ. Um, yeah, I think generally in, in, in the Christian world, we would call that the thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, in the Jewish world, that's called the days of the Messiah. Everybody say days of the Messiah. Or it's also called the messianic era. You could say messianic era. Messianic. And, and that comes from the Hebrew term yomim Mashiach, which means days of Messiah. So, you know, in, in the Christian world, that would be called the thousand-year reign of Christ. In the Jewish world, that would be called the messianic era, the days of Messiah. And uh, it really doesn't describe it, except to say that he's there with his people on the earth, they're raised from the dead. Um, if, if, if you're coming from a Christian background, often you don't really have a very clear picture of what stuff's going to look like when the king comes back. 
you know, for me, for instance, growing up in an evangelical home, I, I mostly thought, you know, when he comes back, like, we're going to be really happy, and I think we're going to be floating around, and there are going to be golden, like, pavement for the streets, which will be a big change from the street we live on here in PA, where they never finish paving the street, you know, or, um, or and, um, I don't know, like, we're going to sing a lot, I think. It'll be like a really, really long church service, or I don't know, something like that. Quite, quite frankly, for a lot of people, the idea of an eternal church service isn't a very rosy prospect. Some people have had maybe some boring impressions of church, so that might even scare them off. But um, that, that's often the ideas that people have in their mind for when the king returns. Um, there are some, some very solid Christian scholars out there. Uh, I think, I think N.T. Wright would be one of them. He has an excellent book on the subject. A uh, uh, Christian men's author named John Eldridge that I enjoy reading has some thoughts on this subject too, suggesting that when Yeshua comes back, we're not just going to be floating in ethereal bliss. Based on Revelation chapter 20, you're going to be here on planet Earth for a solid thousand years. The same Earth that you are going to be on right now, you are going to be enjoying with the creator of the universe himself and with his dear son. And he's going to be ruling from somewhere. I wonder where, he, where he's going to be ruling from. Um, you know, and, and again, when it comes to like the study of future events, eschatology, this isn't the kind of thing that we divide over. This isn't the kind of thing that we kill each other over, right? Um, there is some room for opinions here, and I'm, I'm very aware of that, and I want to acknowledge that. But this is how I would read it, and um, this is how, you know, there are definitely a pretty solid number of early church historians and uh, theologians today that would, would read this. Here's my theory. My theory why Revelation chapter 20 really doesn't describe what's going to happen during that thousand years. My theory is it's because it's already been described in the previous books of the Bible. If you read the prophets of Israel, pretty much every one of them described the thousand-year reign of Christ. They described the messianic era actually in great detail. For instance, the last chapter of the book of Zechariah says there's going to be a time when all the nations are going to go up to Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of booths. And if they don't, woe be unto them. Um, the last two chapters of the book of Isaiah talk about a time when the people of Israel will be regathered to the land of Israel. And um, it actually, here, I'll, I'll read you a verse from, uh, from Isaiah. It's the second last verse. The last verse talks about the worms eating the people who didn't want to go along with the plan. And uh, that's like the last verse. But the second last verse says this. It will be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath all mankind will come to bow down before me, says Yahweh. You know, I read Ezekiel 65 and 66, and quite frankly, it looks really literal to me, and it sure hasn't happened yet. So I would surmise based on this passage, for instance, that there will be a time in the future, maybe when the king comes back, when everybody's going to be worshiping on Sabbath, Shabbat when the global calendar will not be the Roman calendar that starts in January and runs through to December. It'll be something based on the lunar cycles like we had originally in the garden. And um, it's actually going to be a day of worship. That's pretty neat. That's, you know, if, if you were to read this literally, um, that's probably the conclusion you'd come to. Um, another, another prophet that described a time in the future that we as humanity haven't experienced yet is Ezekiel. 
like the last eight chapters of Ezekiel are all of these things that are quite literal. He talks about like the architectural dimensions for a temple. He talks about the tribes of Israel reinstated in the land of Israel in a configuration that they've never had before. Uh, he talks about a river that at, at present doesn't exist geographically. Um, and he goes into great detail on these things. And um, my, my conclusion from those last eight chapters are, these are a description of the thousand-year reign of Christ, of the Messianic era. This is a description of the people of God when the king returns. That, that would be my conclusion. Interestingly enough, Passover is mentioned in Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48. Um, could turn there for a second too. I, I encourage you, I mean, some of it's kind of tough slugging, reading through the last eight, well, all of Ezekiel's tough slugging, but the last eight chapters of Ezekiel are tough slogging too. Like, I, I have an, a, a version of the Bible on audio, and I like to listen to it while I'm driving, and quite frankly, going through those chapters in Ezekiel, where it talks about, like, the dimensions of this temple, and this, this vestibule will be so many cubits, and then this is where the priests will hang the meat on the meat hooks. Like, I, it's just really hard to... Listen to that devotionally. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just feel like, oh, somehow this feels really dry. You know, like this, but, but it's because it's a time, it's about something in the future that hasn't happened yet. And, and uh, you just kind of got to go with it and be like, Father, this is telling me something about you. What is this telling me about you? What is this telling me about your future, uh, about our future? Anyway, um, Ezekiel chapter 46 specifically has um, an interesting mention of this. 46, I think it's chapter 1. Yeah, here's, here's an interesting reference to, the, the, like, um, to God's calendar that he, uh, he was telling Moses and Aaron about for the people of Israel. Ezekiel 46, 1, it says, Thus says the Master Yahweh, The gate of the inner court facing east shall be shut the six working days, but it shall be opened on the Sabbath day and opened on the day of the new moon. So that's rather interesting. It talks about... Uh, about those days. Also in Ezekiel chapter 45, verse 21. It actually mentions, I think it's 4521. Let's have a look here. Yeah. Ezekiel 4521 says, In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, you shall have the Passover, a feast of seven days. Unleavened bread shall be eaten. What's the Hebrew word for unleavened bread? Matzah. That's right. What's the plural of matzah? Matzot. That's right. I think that's one of Tears' favorite words. Matzah! I don't know. Just you can really say it in a fun way. Matzah. Anyway, so that's, that's another description of Passover in a prophetic passage that has yet to have taken place. Um, I uh, was reading an, a, a, a pastor based in Seattle, Washington named Mark, uh, Mark Driscoll. And uh, he's kind of helps to spearhead the Acts 29 network of churches. And uh, he, he had a passage in one of his books where he was saying that he believes this will be, this is a description of the future when Christ returns and um, the, the Jewish people will be regathered to the land of Israel. So it's like, um, it's, it's, it's not a really wild conclusion to come to to say, this will probably be happening when Yeshua comes back. These are some really detailed descriptions. Um, I would suggest maybe there will be some non-Jewish believers who will be there in that time also. <laughs> might not just be racially Jewish Christians who are going to be in the land of Israel during that time. Quite frankly, I would like to be as close to the king as I can be when he comes back. I don't want to be like, I don't, I don't want to be a far distance. I want to be within walking distance, you know? I mean, he's going to be teaching the Bible and he's going to be the best Bible teacher ever and I want to get there like five minutes early every time and always get to hear everything he has to say, you know? Like, that's, that's, that's a thought of mine on, on the subject. 
Anyway, um, Passover is pretty simple. Like in this parasha, basically, it's just like, you know, you have the first month of the year in the springtime. And then on the, you know, on the 14th, you have this big supper. It's like a good feast. And you tell the story of the Passover, about what God did for Israel, what God did for us when he brought us out of Egypt. And um, then on the 15th day of that month, you just take the day off, no work, you get together as a community and you celebrate. And then you do the same thing. And then you eat unleavened bread for seven days until the 21st day of that month. And uh, that seven-day span is called unleavened bread or, or matzo. It's like, that's all. It's really simple. It's actually kind of interesting how he didn't give a lot of details. He wasn't like, and then pray this set of prayers, and then do this at this time, and then read this passage of the Bible. He just said, like, just tell the story, get together and eat, rejoice. Specifically, eat unleavened bread and some bitter herbs. Like, I just, I love how simple the Creator is. It gives us a lot of room to kind of create a, create a cultural expression of it. So that's, that's very cool. Um, notably, in this description of Passover that we read, God uses two Hebrew words to describe how long this, this gets to be something for his people. Uh, one of the words he uses is chok olam. Everybody say chok olam. A chok is a law or a statute. Olam is forever. Everybody say forever. It's actually a word that's used to describe how God is forever. One of his titles in the book of Genesis is El Olam. So is he temporary? Is he for a specific dispensation? No. So if he is Olam forever, and he says this Passover is a Chok Olam, Allah forever, could, could it be that it's still for us today? Could it be that it's part of our heritage? It raises that question. Another thing he says is that Passover and unleavened bread is Ad Olam. Ad means until. And olam means? You know that word. Good job. Yeah, so it's just interesting that God says several times in this passage, Passover is for my people forever. It's a law forever. Like, often we've maybe heard the idea that Passover is something that is dated, that is temporary, that is for a specific dispensation. But when I read this passage, I, I get the impression that maybe it's still part of our heritage. Maybe it's still something that we could do today or that, that, that is relevant. That's a, a question that I would raise here. Now, um, I, I had a conversation with a really good friend of mine a couple weeks ago, and he was saying, where in Paul's letters do you see this? Let's, let's use Passover for an example, or any of God's appointed times. Where in Paul's letters do you see this? Do you really believe that when Paul was planting new churches, that he was encouraging believers in any way to celebrate Passover, or any of the biblical festivals, or anything like that? We had a great conversation about it. Um, you know, we were looking at some passages from Scripture. We were talking about history and some of the early church fathers. And I just I want to go over a little bit of that conversation with you today because it's, it's a very good question. Um, often, you know, we can see some of these passages, for instance, where God says Passover is a law forever. Or we can read some of these descriptions of, that would highly suggest that this is what we're going to be doing when our king returns. And we can say, okay, there are those passages, but there's also some passages in Paul's letters that would possibly suggest to us that this stuff is irrelevant or it's done away with. Maybe it's even dangerous. At first glance, it can almost look like a contradiction or a paradox. But we know that God's word is one, 
and we know that there are no contradictions. So if there's a contradiction, it's just in, an interpret in our interpretation, right? So I'll share with you a couple of passages that I've read in Paul, and also look at the person of Paul, Yeshua's emissary to the non-Jewish world, his apostle to the Gentiles in general. And uh, we'll, we'll see if we can get a, a look at this man and um, what he was teaching. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, this is what Paul, or Shaul, that was his Hebrew name, says to that community of disciples. He says, imitate me as I imitate the Messiah. That's a pretty big thing to say. Paul says, you know, to the degree that you see me following Yeshua, imitating the Messiah, follow along with me. Imitate my lifestyle. And he says that several times in his letters. So the biggest question, I think, for us, before we look at some specifics in the Pauline epistles is, what did Paul do? What was the lifestyle of Shaul? Yeah, what would Paul do? For sure, WWPD. <laughs> kind of sounds like a rock group or a... I think I'm thinking POD. Anyway, um, so I, I want to I look at a couple passages in Paul's epistles and in the description about him in the book of Acts that would suggest that Paul actually celebrated Passover, that Paul was tracking with the calendar that God gave Israel and that he created in the beginning of time. And I want to see what we think about that. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8, 8, I believe it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8. This is interesting. He's writing to this community in Corinth. He's in Ephesus at the time. Um, they are just having a massive kingdom revolution in the city of Ephesus. And uh, this is what he says. I will remain in Ephesus until when? Pentecost. Uh, the Hebrew there is Shavuot. For a wide door for effective service is open to me and there are many adversaries. Okay, um, actually... Um, the, the new pastor here at First Baptist, most of you, most of you met him, Mike Engbers, he, he has been, he's been teaching for the last couple of weeks about the, the church calendar. And one of the things he pointed out to his people is Pentecost isn't actually originally a Christian uh, observance. Pentecost is actually something that God gave the people of Israel. You could say Pentecost is Jewish. Now, for a lot of people, that's like, wait a minute, but we do that in church. Yeah, you do. But when you, let's, let's just look at that for a second. Pentecost is the Greek word for 50. The Hebrew equivalent is Shavuot. Everybody say Shavuot. Shavuot. And it means weeks. So it's the festival of weeks. Now, if you're reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, where it says Shavuot in Hebrew, it'll say Pentecost. Right? So it's throughout, the, it's throughout the Pentateuch, the concept of Pentecost. That wasn't something that just showed up in the first century. Isn't it interesting that Paul is using Pentecost, which is one of God's appointed times from Leviticus chapter 23, like as uh, this marker saying, you know, I'm not going to travel until this date. I'd like to be here for this festival, and then I'll probably come. It's interesting. He writes about it as if it was relevant, as if it was something he practiced, as something that he was tracking with. Um, here, are, here are three other examples from um, the writings of Luke in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, if you want to turn to Acts with me. Uh, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. They were very close. Luke learned a great deal from Paul. And I think it's safe to say that if Luke wrote something, it probably reflects Pauline theology very, very accurately. So he was, um, I mean, most, m much of the book of Acts is actually about the travels and adventures of the Apostle Paul. So let's look at the... the, the um, 
this record from Luke, uh, beginning with uh, chapter 20, verse 6. Acts chapter 20, verse 6. He says, um, this is part of a, Acts 20, verse 6. And this is part of his travel journal about a journey they were taking. He says, we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to the Metros within five days and there we stayed seven days. Now, did you notice that? Luke wrote about the days of unleavened bread, about matzot. It's one of these things that God gave to Israel in this Torah portion that we just read. Now, if Luke was in the land of Israel and he wrote that, it would be a little iffy. You could maybe conclude, ah, he just wrote about that because it's a really big deal in Israel. Everything shuts down and everybody goes on vacation for the week of unleavened bread. But he was writing this in Philippi, which was a Roman colony and was quite pagan. Um, unleavened bread wasn't a big deal in Philippi. There was a little Jewish community and they would shut down their businesses and eat you know, kind of cardboard bread for a week in Philippi, but it really wasn't a big deal to the city. So the fact that Luke writes about the days of unleavened bread would suggest that he and the team he was with, spearheaded by Paul, actually celebrated the days of unleavened bread. With, uh, and if they did that, it's probable that they did it with that church in the city of Philippi. So there's a passage suggesting that the early churches that were under Paul's care actually celebrated the days of unleavened bread. That would be my conclusion anyway. Um, just a little bit farther in Acts chapter 20, in verse 16, we read, For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem if possible on the day of what? Pentecost, which in Hebrew is? Shavuot. So that's interesting. It's like, it wasn't even that, it was just like Paul was actually, he really wanted to be in Jerusalem for this celebration. That's interesting. You get the impression that he cared. You get the impression that it meant something to him. You get the impression that if he had a choice of being somewhere out there on the day of Pentecost or being in Jerusalem, he would really want to be in Jerusalem. It's like, that's, I, th I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, he was, he was hurrying. He actually like canceled a flight and re rescheduled his, um, his travel, his travel uh, schedule so that he could be in Jerusalem for that event. Um, in Acts chapter 27, verse 9, we'll look at one more entry from Luke's travel journal. Acts chapter 27, verse 9. He says, When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them. And of course, it's talking about a ship and they were deciding whether to set sail or not. Did you notice that Luke mentions the fast? In uh, the New American Standard Bible footnotes, it says here, i.e., Day of Atonement, in September or October, which was a dangerous time of year for navigation. It's interesting that we need a footnote on that because it wouldn't make any sense to us otherwise. Why? Because Luke was using a Hebrew idiom for Yom Kippur. It doesn't actually call Yom Kippur the fast in the Torah. That's just what the Jewish people call it, and that's the term that Luke was using. So we need a footnote. It's interesting. Did you notice again that they weren't in the land of Israel when Luke recorded this? They were deciding, these guys were deciding whether to set sail or not. They were in the middle of a journey. Again, it raises the question, could it be that Paul and his team actually fasted for Yom Kippur, for the Day of Atonement? My conclusion would be probably. If this was something that they actually referenced as the fast, it means they probably fasted that day, which is interesting that these things pop up in the travel journal of Luke, who, of course, was a man who worked very closely with Paul. Um, 
give you one more passage that would suggest to me that Paul actually celebrated Passover and the other biblical festivals for his whole lifetime and not just until he met Yeshua on the highway to Damascus. In Acts chapter 21, uh, Paul arrives in Jerusalem and um, there's this vicious rumor going, on, going, going out there about him. There's a, there's a lie that some people have believed about Paul. And the leaders of the Jerusalem community are concerned about that. So they, uh, they come up with this idea that will help Paul publicly state where he's at and um, hopefully deal with this rumor. Acts chapter 21, verse um, 23, he says, Okay, Paul, like, so we have these four guys who are under a vow. It's a Nazarite vow. And uh, so you pay their expenses so they can make the, the appropriate animal sacrifices in the temple. Purify yourself along with them. Why would Paul have to purify himself along with them? Because earlier in this journey, do you remember it says Paul had his head shaved for he was under a vow? Guess what vow that was? That was a Nazarite vow. That's actually something from the Pentateuch. From the, I think it's the book of Numbers. At the end of your Nazarite vow, you shave your head and you go to Jerusalem and you make some animal offerings. So that's why Paul was in there with those four guys, purifying himself and uh, going through with this. And then they conclude by saying, And all will know that there's nothing to the things which they've been told about you, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. Now, we have two ways of interpreting this. We can either assume that these leaders of the Jerusalem community don't care about the facts. They want to hide the truth. And therefore, they're trying to get, kind of get Paul to communicate something that he isn't. Or, they are concerned about the facts, and they want people to understand who Paul really is and what he's really about. Those are the two options that we have. Um, Paul had massive integrity. He was not easily swayed. I mean, he stood up Peter to his face and said, you're wrong. That takes a lot of guts. So Paul wasn't the kind of guy that would just back down and cave. All right? A, a, a lot of, there, there are quite a few Bible commentators and interpreters who would say, this was the point where Paul succumbed to the Jewish legalists. This is the point where Paul basically like totally compromised his values, negated what he believed, and just went along with this plan. But he didn't really want to. Uh, that, that's one interpretation out there. I, I would disagree with that one simply because of who Paul is and because of the passion that he had for the gospel and how he refused to succumb to hypocrisy when it came to the freedom that we have in Yeshua. Um, my, my personal conclusion on this passage would be that Paul actually did, quote, walk orderly and that he did, quote, keep the law. Now, here's a question. If Paul did keep the law, did he do it in a legalistic fashion? No. If Paul did keep the law, did he do it for salvation? No. If Paul did keep the law, did he do it for justification? No. So, regardless of what our conclusions are about Paul or our understandings of the guy, we need to state really clearly we are only saved by grace. Right? By the grace of God, it's nothing you could ever do, nothing you, in the past or anything you could ever do in the future. It's God grace, ex, God's grace expressed to us through Yeshua's death on our behalf, His being raised from the dead, and the Holy Spirit that moves us to walk with Him and to work out our salvation. And that's the work of God. That is not the work of me or you or anybody else, right? So we need to be really clear on that. Um, justification is it by what you do, or is it by faith? It's by faith. You accept the fact that Yeshua died on your behalf. You accept the fact that he is infusing you with the Holy Spirit, making you a new person, so that you're not just positionally righteous, you're constitutionally righteous. It's who you really are in him. 
And that doesn't happen by something you do. That's something that he does, right? So, you know, we're, we're talking about a couple different interpretations of Paul out there. But whatever your conclusion may be, I want to be really clear in our community that salvation and justification and the whole everything that he gives us, it's only by faith and by grace, right? So I just want to put that disclaimer in there as, as, we, uh, as we look at some of these things. So, you know, my, my, my conclusion based on these passages from Luke's travel journal and from Paul's epistle uh, uh, talking about Pentecost, my conclusion from Paul actually um, taking this Nazarite vow, doing the animal offerings with these other four guys at the temple, my conclusion would be, yeah, he actually was, uh, he kept the law. He was what you could call Torah observant. My conclusion would be, he did continue to value um, the calendar that God gave Israel. He continued to celebrate the biblical festivals. And specifically, because this is the one on the table right now, he kept doing Passover. That would be my conclusion. And um, that would be like a look at the man, Paul, uh, after which I would go on to interpret his letters in that context. Let's look for a second at two passages from Paul's letters that could be a little... Um, at first glance, it's like, wait a minute, what is he talking about there? That could be interpreted in one of a couple ways. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. Let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 together. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. I'll read the passage from 8 to 11. He says, however, and you have to remember, he, he's writing this actually to a network of communities of disciples in the Galatian region. Galatia wasn't a city, it was a region. So it'd be like if he started a bunch of communities in the province of Saskatchewan. He came and he found all of these country bumpkins and uh, West Side gangsters and people drinking blood from skulls and worshiping however many hundreds of gods and really living it up. Let's say Paul came to Saskatchewan and he saw a network of communities started. So he's writing like this to a number of them, like one in Regina and one out in Weyburn and then one up in Larange and one in PA. Okay, that, that would kind of be the feel here. And if you, if you want to read this passage contextually, most of these guys weren't Jewish. Some of them were Jewish for sure, but the majority of these people were ex-hardcore pagans. And this is what he has to say. However, at that time when you didn't know God, everybody say you didn't know God. Okay, that's the context. You were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. So in other words, they were slaves to idols. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to by no, be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. And uh, there are a couple interpretations of this passage. Some people would say Paul was fighting tooth and nail with the Judaizers. And some of these early Christians were actually thinking about celebrating Passover or doing some of the biblical festivals. And so Paul had to really dig in with him and say, no, you stay away from that stuff. It's dangerous and it's done away with and you just need to stay away from it. That would be one interpretation of this passage. Another interpretation would be that Paul was writing to ex-pagans and they were going back to some of their pagan ways. They were actually still celebrating some of the 
pagan festivals that maybe their families were still doing, that their boss at their business was still doing, or that their clientele were still celebrating. Maybe they were kind of getting sucked back into some superstition. Those are the two main interpretations. I, I personally would lean towards the one that he wasn't writing to people who were considering doing Passover or some biblical stuff like that. I would, I would interpret that as being he was addressing people who were ex-pagans and who were going back to some paganism. Sounds like maybe astrology, sure, that could be. Anyway, that's my personal understanding. Um, he mentioned days and months, seasons and years. Um, sometimes people will say, well, that was talking about, let's say, celebrating Passover. But, but often, often the people who say, well, he was talking about biblical festivals, you know, those people will, those people will observe days and months and seasons years and years too. It's just more ones that have their roots in Rome instead of ones that have their roots in Jerusalem. That's often the case, which is kind of interesting. So in my observation, everybody in every culture has days and months and seasons and years. It's just a question of which ones do you have and where do, where do they have their roots in. So that's, um, that's one passage, and that would be my take on it. Um, I wouldn't understand that as Paul saying, stay away from Passover, for instance. Um, the, other, um, the other passage that uh, we could look at for a second is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. To skip two epistles over, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. There he says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a shadow of what's to come. But the substance belongs to the Messiah. So there, maybe we would read that and be like, oh, you shouldn't do that stuff anymore. It's just a shadow. Actually, though, it doesn't say it's just a shadow. It says it's a shadow but the substance is a Messiah. So in other words, just like I have a shadow that is like an outline of me, and if you follow my shadow, you will get to me, the biblical festivals, each one is an outline of the Messiah. It's like a silhouette of the gospel. And when the people of God do those days, if they actually are like, why are we doing this? What is the point of this? They will lead you to, guess who? Yeshua. Because each one of them is all about him. Each one of them is all about the gospel. I'll give you an example. Passover. Like, Passover is mind-blowingly about, mind about the gospel. And every single one of the other ones are also. So I wouldn't see that passage as Paul saying, stay away from that stuff. What I would see this being is Paul saying, don't judge each other over these issues. These aren't issues to judge each other over. So if you do these days, don't let people judge you for doing them. And if you, have, if you know someone who's not doing them, don't judge that person for not doing them. That would be my interpretation. So that's a look at Passover in, um, in the writings of Paul. I want to look with you at Passover in early church history also, and in the writings of a couple of the early church fathers, just to see if, it's, if it was still around, if, it, uh, if any of the early believers actually celebrated Passover. And again, you know, when I talk about Passover, it's kind of a package of some other festivals too, like Pentecost and some in the fall also, like the Day of Atonement that we read about in the book of Acts. Um, this is interesting. There was a controversy in the early Yeshua movement in the mid-100s that was called the Quartodeciman Controversy. And it was a big kerfuffle. Everybody say Quartodeciman. Let's see if we can figure out that term. Quarto, what would that be? Yeah, it's like the, the number four. Decimin, what would that be? It's a numeral. 
10, that's right. So quartodecimin is like 4 in 10, which is how much? 14, okay. So basically, like, you could call this in English the 14er controversy, right? So quartodecimin, there were people that were quartodecimins. They were called the 14ers. And uh, there was a big kerfuffle about the quartodecimin controversy. I want to look at that with you. Um, there were two bishops in the mid-100s. One of them was, and a bishop is like a regional overseer. He's involved with a network of, of communities of Yeshua's disciples, right? So we'll, we'll, we'll just call him a bishop for the sake of this discussion here. Um, there was a bishop based in Rome named Anicetus. Everybody say Anicetus. There was another bishop that was based in Ephesus. And his name was Polycarp. Everybody say Polycarp. And there was a, there was, there was a controversy because Anicetus was saying we should celebrate the resurrection of our Lord on Sunday morning and in, in the context of Easter. And Polycarp was saying that wasn't what I received from John the Apostle or from any of the other apostles. Uh, what I received is that we should celebrate Passover on the 14th day of the first month. And that's so Polycarp was a quartodeciman. He was a 14er because he believed that Passover should be celebrated on the 14th of the calendar that's often called the Jewish calendar instead of like the sun, Easter, Easter Sunday. So there was this, there was this big, there was a big, um, there was a big difference of opinions about this. Polycarp didn't want to break fellowship over this issue. So he actually traveled all the way to Rome from Ephesus to have a one-on-one -on -one with Anicetus. And they talked about it. And they arrived at some degree of understanding. So they went, there, they went back home. And um, Anicetus kind of, he stayed with his opinion. Easter Sunday is the thing. And Polycarp stayed with his opinion that, that doing Passover on the 14th is the thing. Um, a generation later... It came back with a vengeance to the point where people were trying to excommunicate each other over it, the quartodeciman question. Um, that, in that generation, the bishop in Rome wasn't Anicetus anymore, it was Victor. Everybody say Victor. Victor. And the bishop in, in Ephesus was Polycrates. Everybody say Polycrates. All right. This time, Victor was really pushing his, his, um, his stance. Uh, he tried to excommunicate Polycrates and anybody who was a quartodeciman, anybody who dared to celebrate Passover on the 14th, Victor had no room for that in his worldview. In his opinion, everybody had to do Easter on Sunday morning. And uh, he, he worked to try and excommunicate him. And quite a few of the other like, significant bishops in the early Yeshua movement stepped in. They wrote letters. They were able to resolve that so nobody got excommunicated. And they tried to keep as strong a bond of unity as they could. But it was still a big flap. And um, I want to read to you a uh, passage from Eusebius. Eusebius was an early church historian from uh, the 300s. Um, he was a historian for the early, Constantine's early Roman Catholic Church, basically. And um, in book five of his histories, chapter, chapters 23 and 24, he writes about this big controversy. So uh, let's read that together. Um, he says, um, A question of no small importance arose at that time. For the parishes of all Asia, what was the central city in Asia? Ephesus, that's right. The parishes in all of Asia, as from an older tradition, everybody say older tradition, held that the 14th day of the moon, on which day the Jews were commanded to sacrifice the lamb, should be observed as the feast of the Savior's Passover. All right? So the churches in Asia, with Ephesus as its key city, 
they held to it this older tradition, Eusebius calls it, that on the 14th day should be observed as the feast of the Savior's Passover. He goes on to say, synods and assemblies of bishops were held on this account, and all with one consent, through mutual correspondence, drew up an ecclesiastical decree that the mystery of the resurrection of the Lord should be celebrated on no other day but the Lord's day, and that we should observe the close of the Paschal fast on this day only. So he says most of the bishops put their heads together and said, no, we should um, be doing this on, on um, the Lord's day, Sunday morning. He goes on, book 5, chapter 24, to say, But the bishops of Asia, led by Polycrates, decide to hold to the old custom handed down to them. He himself, in a letter which he addressed to Victor and the Church of Rome, set forth in the following words the tradition which had come down to him. Quote, We observe the exact day, neither adding nor taking away, for in Asia also great lights have fallen asleep, which shall rise again on the day of the Lord's coming, when he shall come with glory from heaven and shall seek out all the saints. Among these are, and then he has a rather long list of key players in the early Yeshua movement. He mentions Philip the Apostle, uh, John the beloved Apostle, Polycarp, who we just talked about, who was the generation preceding Polycrates, and then he mentions several other regional overseers like Melito, who was famous and he has a pretty nice uh, chunk of writing in the early church fathers' literature. So he mentions all these people, and then he says, um, all these observe the 14th day of the Passover, according to the gospel, deviating in no respect, but following the rule of faith. And I also, Polycrates, the least of you all, do according to the tradition of my relatives, some of whom I have closely followed. For seven of my relatives were bishops, and I am the eighth. And my relatives always observe the day when the people put away the leaven. So um, I thought that was notable. Polycrates said, Several, at the very least, several of Yeshua's apostles, like Philip and John, they celebrated Passover for their whole lives. And uh, oh, I like this how he says, they observed the 14th day of the Passover according to the gospel. So he didn't just see this as being something from the law. He saw this as being something that was according to the gospel. I just, I, I throw that out to you. This is, this is part of your heritage from the, some of the early luminaries in the Yeshua movement. They didn't see the biblical festivals as just something that was done according to Torah. They saw, they saw the gospel plastered all over that thing. So, you know, for those of us who do any of the biblical festivals, Passover or weeks or the days of trumpets and atonements or, or, um, or booths or whatever, think of that not only as something that you do according to the Torah, think of that as something that you do according to the gospel. Because it's all about Yeshua. And if it's not about him, then you miss the point. So anyway, that's, that's a phrase that I really like and that I want to work into my vocabulary, according to the gospel. I also thought it was interesting that he said that, um, he says, my relatives all, always observe the day when the people put away the leaven. So he wasn't just doing the Passover supper on Passover day. They also put the leaven out of their houses. Isn't that interesting? It's not to say that all the believers in the early church did that, but there was a significant number of believers in some areas that celebrated Passover and that did a good spring house cleaning and got all of the leavened products out of their house and had that unleavened bread for the week. That's interesting. That that was a legitimate expression of faith in, in the first and second centuries. Uh, Polycrates goes on to say, Therefore, I therefore, brethren, who have lived 65 years in the Lord and have met with the brethren throughout the world and have gone through every holy scripture, I'm not affrighted by terrifying words. 
Uh, he's referring to Victor, who was trying to get him excommunicated as a heretic for celebrating Passover and, and cleaning the leaven products out of his home. He says, I'm not frightened by terrifying words, for those greater than I have said, we ought to obey God rather than man. That's interesting. So that, that's one voice and one event from um, the first couple centuries of the early Yeshua movement. I'll, uh, I'll read you another interesting reference to this in uh, Tertullian. Um, Mike was the one who originally pointed, tipped me off to this quote, and it's a good one. A Tertullian, he was hardcore. Like, he was a fiery individual. Sometimes you'll come across little, little quotes from the early Yeshua movement, and many of them are from Tertullian. He, uh, he took a very hard stance against paganism. Um, some people would call him the founder of Latin Christianity. Um, anyway, um, he, uh, this whole book is Tertullian, books one, two, and three. And then he also has book four. And um, I'll read to you something from his treatise on baptism, uh, 18th chapter. This is a, a short chapter on the times most suitable for baptism. And again, Tertullian, he, he, uh, he lived in the 100s also, in the last half of the 100s. He says, The Passover affords a more than usually solemn day for baptism, when withal the Lord's passion in which we are baptized was completed. Nor will it be incongruous to interpret figuratively that when the Lord was about to celebrate the last Passover, he said to the disciples who were sent to make preparation, you will meet a man bearing water. He points out the place for celebrating the Passover by the sign of water. After that, Pentecost is a most joyous space for conferring baptisms, wherein too the resurrection of the Lord was repeatedly proved among the disciples, and the hope of the advent of the Lord indirectly pointed to, in that at that time, when he had been received back into the heavens, the angels told the apostles that, quote, he would so come as he had withal ascended into the heavens, at Pentecost, of course. But moreover, when Jeremiah says, and I will gather them together from the extremities of the land in the feast day, he signifies the day of the Passover and of Pentecost, which is properly a feast day. So that's, that's, a, that's a quotation from Tertullian, and basically saying, you know, if you have a choice which day you're going to baptize new believers, Pentecost should be your first choice, and pa uh, sorry, Passover should be your first choice, and Pentecost is a good second pick. And then, you know, he, he gives those reasons. And then he connects that back to a passage in Jeremiah talking about gathering the people of Israel from the extremities of the land on a feast day. So it's interesting that Tertullian says Passover is a feast day, Pentecost is a feast day. And these are great days to baptize new believers. So again, uh, these celebrations were part of the life of the early church. I'll give you two more references from early church history on this subject. Um, Socrates, another early church historian, he wrote about quartodecimans in the three and four hundreds. Again, quartodecimans are 14ers, right? People who do Passover on the 14th. Uh, John Chrysostom, who was a famous preacher, John the uh, Chrysostom means like the golden mouthed. This was the golden mouthed preacher. Like if anybody could elocute, it was him. And um, he actually tried to deprive some people of their churches over this issue. So he had no room in his theology or his, his space of fellowship for people who celebrated Passover on the 14th. Uh, John Chrysostom really disliked 14ers. Um, also Nestorius, uh, both Chrysostom and Nestorius, they were bishops of Constantinople. Nestorius was another one who harassed 14ers. 
So um, it's interesting that there were still believers in the three and four hundreds who celebrated Passover on the 14th, and by then it was getting a little less popular. There were people who were trying to crack down on these guys a little more and edge them out. Um, uh, Victor of Rome would have been really happy about that, I guess. And I'll leave you with one more quote on this subject from the Encyclopedia Britannica. This is about Constantine in the early 300s and the Council of Nicaea and some of their conclusions. Encyclopedia Britannica says, a final settlement of the dispute, that is the Quartodeciman dispute, was among the other reasons which led Constantine to summon the council at Nicaea in 325. At that time, the Syrians and Antiochians were the solitary champions of the observance of the 14th day. So Antioch, the Antiochians, they were the people based in Antioch, right? Which is, um, that's, the first, that's the first city where believers were called Christians. It was the first major city that the gospel hit after it um, began to migrate out of the uh, parameters of the land of Israel. So he mentions the Antiochians and the Syrians, that area, were the solitary champions of um, this. The decision of the council was unanimous that Easter was to be kept on Sunday and on the same Sunday throughout the world and that, quote, none hereafter should follow the blindness of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? I mean, if you, if you, read, if you read Constantine, he was a flaming anti-Semite. Um, he continued to kill Christians and Jews after his so-called conversion, which is a little hard to understand. And um, I just, I think, I, I felt like that was sad. I mean, if, you know, if they want to establish Easter, that's one thing. But to do it in an anti-Semitic way, that's another thing. For, for, for many of the early church leaders in the 300s, there was an anti-Semitic root. And for some of them, that was part of their motivation for, for establishing Easter Sunday as the one day when the resurrection was celebrated instead of Passover. Why? So that none hereafter should follow the blindness of the Jews. Heaven forbid we would ever look Jewish. Heaven forbid we would ever do anything the Jews do. Uh, that, you know, that saddens me. That's a chapter of church history that saddens me because I, I feel like a lot of believers were, something was robbed, robbed from them. Part of their heritage was taken from them. Um, you know, we, we read about Polycarp saying, you know, Yeshua's apostles, a uh, long time after his ascension, they were still doing Passover in memory of him, according to the gospel. That was something that the early, the early Yeshua movement did. And, you know, it saddens me. A lot of believers have never even experienced Passover once, from, much less, you know, making it a, a part of their, their lives or their faith expression. And I, I think, you know, there's something there that I, I personally think Yeshua is calling his people back to. I believe that's part of the restoration that, that God is accomplishing in, in um, the body of Messiah in our time. That's, um, that's my feeling on that. That's very true, yeah. I'll just repeat that too. So Yahweh said in Leviticus 23, these are my appointed times. So they're not necessarily, I mean, you know, in, in, in John it does say that Passover was a Jewish festival, but that's because all the Jewish people were doing it. It makes perfect sense, of course, you know. So the, it's primarily about him. And even to build on that, it was in the context of a Passover Seder that Yeshua offered Passover bread and said, this is my body. It was in the context of a Passover Seder, the third cup of the Seder specifically, the one you have after the main meal, that he said, this cup is all about him and the new covenant in his blood. So, you know, it's like you always said, these are my appointed times. We can also hear Yeshua saying very clearly, this is my appointed time. Yeah. Yes, that's right. He said, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So it's definitely about him. Do we then say, forget Christ? Right. That's, that's a great question. I'll finish with one more thought here, and then we can, we can carry on that discussion. So, you know, all that to say, like, I, I believe this is an area 
where we are being called to restoration, we have lost part of our heritage. And uh, for someone like me who is passionate about going back to being like the early church, this is something I, I'm passionate about for believers to come back to and to experience for themselves. Um, you know, of course, like in our community, we, we, we celebrate the, the festivals and things, but I, I would leave you with this challenge. Are you, are, if you do the festivals, are you doing it because it's trendy? Are you doing it because your group does it? Or are you doing it because you personally are passionate about it? Because you have heard Yeshua's voice and you want to follow Him in those footsteps? Or do you have a personal commitment? So let's say our community closes down and all of us move away except for you. What will you do? Will you still do Passover even if it's just you? If you're locked in the pen or if you're stuck on a deserted island, it'll be a little hard to do it on a deserted island, but just saying for the for, for imagination, you know, would you still do it? Or are you just going along with the crowd? So are you doing it because your spouse is doing it or a friend is doing it? Are you doing it because you want to follow Yeshua? Frank, quite frankly, if you're not doing it because you are following Yeshua, you're not doing it for the right reason. And you're being trendy. We don't want to be trendy, right? We want to follow Yeshua. Um, one other thing, like, okay, let's say we do Passover. Let's very much take the words of Paul to heart, where he said, don't judge people over these matters. Most of our fellow believers in the city don't do Passover. Most of them do Easter, and I won't judge them over that, right? So be really clear about attitudes. Attitudes are super important. There's a, there's a way to do it that is sweet, that is positive, that is attractive, and there's a way to do these things that's really ugly and judgmental and, se like, and, and separatistic, and I don't want that to be our attitude, right? I, I don't think it is. I really appreciate the spirit that we have in our group. So, um, yeah. Like, you, you know how in the early Reformation, believers died over the question of whether to be immersed in water as an adult or not, people would be like, what's the big deal? Who cares? You get sprinkled as a baby or you get dunked as an adult. It's not something to die over. But, th but there, was a, there was a fire in the lives of the Anabaptists and the early Reformers to say no. The Word of God is important. The physical, the, the physical expressions of how we do the Word of God is important. And Satan fought that tooth and nail. So, you know, when you look at something like Passover, I would look at Passover the same way I would look at immersion in water, baptism. It's a physical expression of our faith. It powerfully pro proclaims the gospel. And if it is something that we as the people of God have lost in the Dark Ages, then Yeshua has an agenda to restore it. And it will be a battle. There will be contention. Satan might even fight it tooth and nail. My personal opinion is Satan hates it when God's people do Passover because it's all about Yeshua. And we're proclaiming the death and the resurrection of our Master. So, you know, you might, you might get some flack for it, but just, just tough up and go through it and keep praying. Yeshua is leading us. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.